Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Yeah, I was just thinking a bit about these mass shootings because I've been doing this type of program since the mid-1980s, and so there have been many of them. And I think of Virginia Tech, of course, 32 deaths. Think of the Sandy Hook Elementary School, uh, 27 deaths. The Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, Parkland, Florida, 17. Columbine. Um, we have just recently Oxford High, uh, not too far from where we broadcast from, here in Michigan. And, of course, uh, this tragic shooting in uh, Uvalde, Texas. And I, I've noticed that almost always uh, after these events, there's a pretty quick response as, as people try to distance themselves. This is my fix on it. As people try to distance themselves from the horror of it. And the way to do it is to say that somehow this uh, shooter is, you know, well, he's mentally ill. Uh, and by saying he's mentally ill, we say, well, he snapped. He, you know, he, it, and there's not too much you can do about that. Uh, maybe we can do, you know, better mental health awareness or things like that. But um, the question is, is that true? Because in many of these cases, it looks as though these shooters had been planning it for a long time. It doesn't seem to be uh, a matter of just snapping. Well, join me right now to help us understand better what's at work here in these mass shootings is Mark Fullman. He's author of Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. He's a columnist for Mother Jones, and you can follow him on Twitter at Mark Fullman, F-O-L-L-M-A-N. Mark, good to have you here. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. Let me start out with this question about mental illness, which has become a common way of, I think, distancing ourselves from the horror of these things. We have some crazy people among us, and they snap. What's the evidence for this idea that people just kind of snap and we have these mass shootings? Yeah, it, it's a really important question. I'm glad you're asking it. That's not what happens in these cases. And the issue of mental health and how that figures into these mass shootings is really important to understand better. It's widely misunderstood and, and frankly, misused in the political debate over mm-hmm. gun violence and over these mass attacks. Yeah. Um, so when you study these cases, as I have for a long time in the course of researching and writing the book, um, you can see in every single case that there is a a process that builds up to these attacks, a process of behaviors and circumstances that often involves rational thinking and planning in these perpetrators. Uh, so this notion that we hear over and over again that these are insane people who suddenly snap and come out of nowhere, none yeah. of that is true. No. That's not how these attacks occur. Uh, that being said, no mass shooter, by definition, is a mentally healthy person. Right. So we we really run into the, the limits, I think, of lay language in discussing this and thinking about it. Uh, but it's, it is a mistake to dismiss this as insane people who we can't understand, because that's just simply not the case. Yeah. These are explainable attacks. Now, oftentimes, then, after these things, people will have pr- proposals for how we can stop these uh, attacks. So... Uh, early on uh, the other day, somebody was saying, look, they have a fence around the school, but the fence is too low. We need better security fencing. Uh, Somebody else will say, we need more armed security there. These are all things that are reactive 
uh, to the event. They do nothing to uh, avoid uh, the formation of perpetrators like this. That's right. And, and I came to see through my work, and I, and I argue with trigger points, that we need to emphasize much more being proactive about this problem, to, to work to prevent it before mm-hmm. it happens, rather than to take these reactive steps that, you know, they may have some benefit. I mean, physical security is important in sure. a basic sense, preparation uh, for the unlikely tragedy of, of any kind, of whether it's a shooting or an earthquake or a fire. We have drills for that, but to suddenly have our entire country doing active shooter drills in every school Mm -hmm. um, in anticipation of an attack, I think that emphasis is wrong. We need to be thinking more about how to prevent it from happening at all, because active shooter drills and uh, taller fences and more security guards are not going to stop this problem. Those steps have been taken for more than two decades now, since the 1999 mass shooting at Columbine High School. That became a very forceful policy direction in this country. And meanwhile, we've had an escalating problem with these attacks. So clearly that is not an effective solution. So uh, is there any single element that we can fasten on that, you know, forecasts potential violence here? No, there isn't. And that's another important myth to debunk about this problem. There's no way to profile a mass shooter predictably. There's no type of person or characteristics, set of characteristics, no checklists. The key to this work of behavioral threat assessment, which is the focus of the book, is to study the patterns of behavior and circumstances, the process, the behavioral process leading up to these attacks, and identify within that a set of knowledge that can be used to recognize warning signs and to then take steps to intervene and manage a a concerning situation. And that's what threat assessment teams do. So Mm -hmm. there's no one thing that tells you someone is turning dangerous, but threat assessment teams that bring together multidisciplinary expertise in mental health, in law enforcement, in education, and, and other disciplines can look at a broad set of information gathered about a concerning individual evaluate the level of danger based on many things that they're seeing, and then come up with a plan to intervene constructively and steer the person away from violent thinking and violent planning. And that is what is driving all of these cases. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, this makes sense to me. I, I wonder, but where do you get a multidisciplinary team like that? You know what I'm saying? I mean, most right, schools right. don't have, I don't think, that kind of expertise uh, to, to support, you know, a, a, a team outside the classroom who's evaluating, you know, students or parents. Sure. No, that is also a great question, and it's an important challenge for the for the field, the practitioners in the field, to uh, convey clearly to the public how this works. Um, I think one of the most important points here is that the infrastructure to do this is largely already in place. That's how leaders in the field will talk about it, and from what I've seen in looking at programs. In other words, in a school system, you have the people who are going to serve on the team in place already, in in large part. Administrators, school counselors, psychologists, Mm -hmm. um, school resource officers. That's the model. So it's a matter of getting them the training and the set of protocols to work with to do this work. And when, when it's done this way... It can be quite effective. I, I chronicle a lot of cases in trigger points where this this process of handling a concerning student who's showing the signs of planning violence has been very effective 
over a period of time. So it does sound that it could be resource intensive. And, and of course, educators are already very strained in terms of resources. But there is an imperative here to deal with the safety and right. well-being of students. That's right. always been in existence in our schools, right? That's right. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Can, tell me a story. Tell, tell me a story of where you've seen this work. So in the book, I focus on a program in Salem, Oregon. The, the K-12 Salem-Kaiser School District was one of the first in the country to pioneer this model after Columbine. So they've been building this program over two-plus decades, and I was able to spend uh, a lot of time there in 2019 for the book and see how they do these cases, mm-hmm. how they come together in, in a weekly session to evaluate a set of cases and talk about what they think the root of the problem is with the concerning student, and then make steps to intervene, make a plan. Uh, one case I write about at length is uh, a high school junior named who I call Brandon in the book, who was making comments about bringing a gun to school and shooting up the place. Mm-hmm. Um, some of his peers weren't sure if he was joking. That comes up in a lot of cases, including in the Oxford High School case that right. happened last year. Um, and there were some other concerning circumstances going on with Brandon where he was showing signs of personal deterioration. He was uh, failing out of some classes. He quit a drama club that he was very engaged with previously. Hmm. Interesting. Um, those kinds of abrupt changes are a strong signal in a lot of these cases. Something is not right here. And so I watched the team gather and evaluate this information and then come up with a plan to step in and try to intensively help this, this student. They offer him counseling support. They give him an individual education plan. They work with the mom in the home to ensure that he doesn't have access to a firearm, mm-hmm. which was in the home but was in theory locked up. And he bragged about getting the code to the gun safe. Uh, the team was able to determine that he did not have that access, which was good in terms of any immediate risk. Sure. But the question then becomes, how do you manage this longer term, Right. And the broader question is, how do you help an individual who is spiraling into crisis and is thinking about violence? And that's what the team's really taking on. Over a period of months, I was able to watch this case and see how they helped Brandon steer him in a better direction. And he goes on to have a relatively successful senior year, and he wow. graduates. Really? Um, did, did, um, do they again, when the team comes up with this idea that uh, Brandon may be a danger or a threat. Do they contact the parent first? Yes, that's often what happens. They'll they'll reach out quickly to the parents. They will quickly reach out to people around the student who are voicing concerns, so that's peers or teachers or others. And they will also talk with the individual themselves. So there was immediately an, uh, an SRO on the team who went out to the home the day of the reported threatening comment to assess the danger, to see if he did, in fact, have access to a gun. He spoke with Brandon and his mother in the home. Um, so that is often a, a first effort. Mm-hmm. You know, depending on the evidence at hand or the, the reported concern at hand, uh, that will drive the, how quickly a team jumps into action and, and how it goes about gathering information, both okay. through those kinds of interviews and then also looking at lawfully available records, any criminal records, any educational records in the school system and so on, um, online activity, you know, all of these different avenues for uh, getting a broader, clearer picture of what's going on with the person. Yeah. Uh, in the in the Oxford case, we have yeah. what struck me as un, unusually uh, un, the 
the parents seem to be uh, almost as much a part of the problem as the as the, the killer. Uh, they they completely missed threatening messages that uh, they received. They provided easy access to firearms. Uh, do we often find parents? Oh, we're out of time. Dogs. I have to have you back, Mark. I'm sorry. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> I, I, I will say quickly, the Oxford case is a very stark one, and there's more to talk about there, so we can return to that if you want. I appreciate it. I'll give you a call. Thanks so much, though. Uh, really, uh, this is some of the most sensible stuff I've heard about. So we'll talk again. Mark Fallman is the author of Trigger Warnings. We're going to, again, pick up on the conversation in the near future.